0: This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider.
1: Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional. I'm your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast was, like most creative processes, birthed from a combination of a several cups of coffees and honestly, even more questions posed by a series of impassioned graduate students that I've had the pleasure of supervising over the last several years. First Bite's mission? to answer those questions that we've all had, but we've either been too afraid to ask, or we didn't have the subject matter expert saved to our own personal speed dials. So, do you too have more questions and answers when it comes to treating your medically complex and fragile pediatric patients? Are you unsure if the signs and symptoms that you're observing are indicative of an allergy, maybe an underlying GI issues, or could they possibly be neurologically driven? How many questions do you really have for that registered dietitian regarding the formulas prescribed and the flow rate through that patient's G-tube? Have you ever been consulted for a quote-unquote difficult latch only to find out that the mother is exclusively breastfeeding, but you've never nursed a little one or worked with the breastfed patient before? And what about functional communication? Are you so over flashcards, but you need advice on how to get started with core vocabulary with a non-speech generating device or how to find the right fit for a speech generating device? Do you have additional worries about the basic day-to-day running and documentation of your private practice? How do you go about obtaining referrals or even documenting that note so that the insurance company deems it medically necessary? If you answered yes, well, then come join me, Michelle Dawson, for this dynamic podcast presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Who am I, you ask? Well, I'm a self-described SLP geek with, as my family says, a touch of the ADD and ADHD. I have a passion for serving the least of these, namely the most complex and involved pediatric patients in their natural environment through my private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in the Columbia, South Carolina metro area. I also have had the pleasure, and currently still am, traveling the country where I lecture on best practices for pediatric dysphagia and functional language acquisition delivered through an early intervention natural environment model. Are you still intrigued? Then come join me as I interview some amazing folks. And don't forget that you can submit questions for Q&A or interview request topics to me via email at firstbiteatspeechtherapypd.com or on our Facebook page. And also check out our website, drop a review, subscribe to obtain those coveted Ashton CEUs. All right, folks, let's get right to it. Welcome back to First Bite. Fed Fun and Functional Resources for the Pediatric Clinician. I'm your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. The topic of today falls in the Fed category. And I am once again joined by the amazing Miss Erin Forward, our upstate South Carolina gal by way of Rochester, New York, who, if memory serves correct, is only a few weeks away from her official graduation. Can we get a whoop whoop, you're almost done, baby. Um and, as I mentioned in episode four, this pod course is possible because of a seed that she planted with me a year ago. And as such, I sweet talked her into this adventure of which she graciously obliged. And tonight, Aaron and I will be covering treatment of pediatric and feeding, um, feeding and swallowing disorders, but specifically our populations that have feeding tubes. Um, I'm thinking like long-term feeding tubes at that. So on that note, Erin, um, please catch folks up to speed about who you are and where you studied before we dive right in.
0: All right, so for those of you that don't know, I grew up in the cold Rochester, New York. I went to undergrad at the University of Pittsburgh, where I have a degree in psychology and communication sciences and disorders. Um, I then moved further south to the University of South Carolina, where I am almost finished with my Master in Speech Pathology and am finishing up my final externship in Greenville at the Children's Hospital um, inpatient. So what, what is it, like August 9th?
1: Is that your... We got like... Yes, the 10th the 10th so we are um like two two and a half weeks away so yay <laughs> we're getting there <laughs> you're gonna survive it'll be fun all right so um we are gonna tackle feeding tubes tonight and again it's roles re- reversed which always puts me in the hot seat and makes me um you know pick michelle in tonight so um i will um hand the imaginary mic over to to you for the Q's and I'll
0: do the A's. All right. Well, um, I think especially as a new clinician, um, a big question that we have going in to working with a child is how do you begin treatment with a patient that has um, a G-tube or versus a J-tube?
1: Okay. Um, all right. So my first thought is how many student clinicians or new to the field of pediatric dysphagia clinicians know the difference between a G and a J? So a G tube goes directly into the stomach. The J tube goes into the second portion of the small intestines. The old um, rule of thumb is the lower the feeding tube, the more complex and six sick the kid is overall so um, I know you folks can't see me but I've got my finger on the bridge of my nose if it goes through their nose we anticipate a feeding tube four to six weeks tops Um, I've heard tall tales out in California where they'll put a nasally placed feeding tube in for 12 months but that is the exception rather than the norm Um, a child that gets a g-tube has it in um six weeks plus um but we're planning ideally to get off of a feeding tube or in worst case scenario maintaining the feeding tube um But their overall health of their intestines are pretty good. If you have a kid that has a J-tube, they're pretty much on continuous feeds. Um, J-tubes last... Man, when you get a J-tube-fed baby, it's 18 to 20 to 22 hours a day that that child is connected to a constant slow drip feed, Um, typically of like an elemental formula like Almentum or um, something that's broken it down to just... The minutest levels. Um, I think we inter. I interviewed um, Mr. Jeremy Pons, who's an amazing registered dietitian, and has talked us a really good job explaining about the different types of formulas. But then there's this weird combo one that's a GJ. Um, did, have you have you seen a GJ yet? Yes. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, I actually didn't see a GJ tube until like four or five years ago. It was like the mystery tube that I didn't Mm -hmm. know what I was getting into. And then I saw it in real life. And I was like, that looks totally different than it did in the textbook. Um, but y'all a GJ tube, it's, um, one hole through the stomach, but it has two kind of like valves or two kind of ports. The, the gastric one goes directly into the stomach. Um, That's where we could do our bolus feeds during the day and the J portion runs through, has a tiny tube that runs internally through to the um, second portion of the small intestine. And that, excuse me, has a... um, it allows for the continuous overnight feed so that we can just pack in the calories. Um, so there's our crash course in tubes. Um, but my first thought when I get a kid that has a feeding tube, um, uh, I need to understand their flow rate. I need to understand their timing because Uh, I need to time my therapy sessions when their stomach is the, or their gut is the most empty. So if you think about it from our, um, our G tube kids, um, if their last bolus feed was at like 10 o'clock at night, uh, spread out over an hour and their next feeds at nine o'clock in the morning, I want to get in the door around 8 8.45 or worst case scenario right at nine o'clock when they are first getting connected because they recognize or hopefully that's your best chance for the child recognizing their hunger cue. Um, that a lot of times you'll see these are the kids that if they've had can, like a feeding tube long term, they're playing with their buttons. They're spinning it Um Sometimes they'll gesture towards a feeding tube can. Um, I've had kids that made a subtle little sound like this. Um, They're like pressing their tongue up against the surface of their palate and kind of creating like a sucking motion. Um, Sorry if I popped everybody's eardrum with my imitation of that sound. But but the catch is if you have a kid that has a J-tube feed, you don't want that first one in the morning if they've had a continuous overnight feed through a j-tube or sometimes a continuous and it happens not as often but a continuous slow feed through their g-tube overnight um you want to hit them when they've actually had their pump turned off for a little bit that way they can feel hungry even if it's just their gut being slightly less filled. Um, But that's first and foremost, I need that baby to recognize a hunger cue and know that they're hungry. Does that answer? That's a long winded
0: michelle Land question. Let's answer that question. Okay. How with a child that has a J-tube, if they you know, they're having those continuous feeds. Do you look at them differently seeing as they don't have that food sitting directly on their stomach as far as like similar to a child that has a G tube? Yes.
1: Um, my, before I feed a kid that has a G tube, I want in writing from the pediatrician or the GI, whoever's running point as to what they can actually safely consume. Um, I've worked with a couple of kids that had J-tubes. One of them um, succumbed to the underlying etiology. Um, And the doctors were very, very specific about what they could and could not eat because the gut was so compromised. Um, One kid was allowed green beans and only green beans. (laughs) And his overall long-term plan was he's never getting off of the feeding tube. I mean, he had short gut syndrome. We had CP, we were 25 weaker. We were status post. Like, I can't remember how many bleeds. I think it was like two or three small two grade two bleeds. Um, his medically fragile foster, um, she called herself grandma cause she was in her early seventies. She just wanted him to, um, Increase the quantity of canned green beans that he can masticate through in a 30 minute meal with the family. And that baby, his goal was to go from one green bean in 30 minutes to four. And he would pick up, and they were like, honest to goodness, some of the slowest sessions that I've ever done for therapy because I'm sitting there eating my foreign green beans with his. But he'd pick it up and go, mm mm, mm, finger looking good. And he would eat it. <laughs> He, he also knew all the old Southern hymns. And so in between eating a green beans, he bust out a hymn. So like, you know, uh, sweet child. But, um, his, his plan of care was significantly different than the kid that I have that has a G tube because his quality of life is different. Like we know we're not getting that kid long-term off of, the J tube he's he's going to always need it for nourishment but it's quality of life that we're focusing on
0: Mm -hmm. so speaking of that talk to me about quality versus quantity versus feeding tube dependency
1: okay so um our NICU folks Um, Are probably privy to quality versus quantity way more than our home health clinicians. Um, That being said, we gotta, we gotta encourage that in this setting too. Um, also side note squirrel, um, if you're working in the NICU, get your hands on anything and everything you can by Catherine Shaker. She's amazing and brilliant. And I have super nerdy girl crush on her. Um, that would be your go-to source for that. Um, I want to print off some of her like Q and As and get her to sign them just because I think she's amazing. But agreed, yeah, agreed. (laughs) We're all like, oh, grow up and be Catherine Shaker, Um, yeah. Quality feeds means we're not as stressed out about the volume that is taken orally. scratch that quantity yeah there it is it's been a long day folks we're all here. <laughs> um, with the quality feeds I'm not that stressed about the volume by mouth I want a good feed I want that child who has had a lot of negative oral experiences um to have a pleasant experience and maybe it's the first pleasant experience that kids had. I mean, I've had the kids that were in PO coming home from the hospital and um, three, six months later after being home, they finally through thin liquid or, you know, water trials, they um, are allowed PO for the first time after an instrumental exam but that entire time, they were getting their tube feeds. So I want them to have positive oral experiences. Um, are they are they in fight or flight, or are they comfortable? Are they neutral? And that's I know you've seen that in homes with me. I know you've seen that um, at the hospital that you've worked at. But feeding therapy has to be positive to neutral. Worst case scenario. The second you go from neutral to fearful or stressful, the child is set for failure. And that's where quantity feeds kind of interplay in. Quantity feeds fall in that um, neutral to negative fearful zone. Um, And unfortunately, nurses get a bad rep for quantity feeds. Uh, They're not, all nurses are not that way, but that's what um, a lot of our professionals run up against. And I've run up against that in the home health where the home health RN is pushing, 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 getting, you know, three or four ounces by a bottle in the child's mouth and the child has overt signs and symptoms of aspiration. And we've got nasal regurgitation and it's dripping out. We've got um, um, a significant change in vocal quality and a wet cough. That's, But they're so adamant that the child will reach the quantity by mouth, but they're not looking holistically at the child. And I've also seen seeing well-meaning parents that just so desperately want their child to take food in by mouth that they're just looking at the quality quantity and not the quality of the feed um some of our more rare diagnoses that um I've run up against um I've had some old school pediatricians that um you know, it's the Deep South. We have some unique um, opinions on um, female intelligence. at <laughs> you like how I'm skirting this, uh-huh. <laughs> folks? Can't you can't tell it? But I'm blushing. <laughs> um, but um, sexism is a real thing. We'll acknowledge that. Um, but sometimes with these rare um, genetic conditions. We need feeding tubes because the metabolic rates, absorption rates for these kids or their underlying cardiac conditions. I need the quantity feed through their feeding tube so that we can work on a good quality feed by mouth. Mm -hmm. Does that one... All right. And then you you asked about another term, um, oh, feeding tube Feed dependency. dependency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the bane of our existence. Man, if we had a quick fix for this, none of us would have a job, right? <laughs> um, all right. So feeding tube dependency is where um, the, uh, the child uh, has pretty much been feeding tube fed from the get go. And they have zero desire for food by mouth because it has no merit to them. Their brain, mouth, their gut is not connected. And they don't understand why we should, why we even show up once or twice a week and try to convince them to serve something in their gullet. Um, that's um, very, unfortunately, very common with our incredibly complex kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say I've seen it as young as, um, I have a kiddo right now that she is adjusted age 10 months and we're battling it. Um, and she was PO, all PO up until about five months and has lost it that quickly. So, or has transitioned to feeding tube dependency, but, um, I mean, your, your practicum site right now, you have to see it on the get-go, like the, the build-up to G
0: well, And it, that's the thing that's interesting is seeing kids in home health who have the G-tube, you're working on, you know, PO trials, all that kind of stuff, but then being in the hospital and seeing the process of them Getting to the point where they need a G tube, where you have a child come in who, you know, they can't figure out what's going on, why their failure to thrive, why it's slow weight gain. And in some instances, a child that at six months has already had so many negative experiences with PO because of reflux or allergies or anything. And then I've seen clefts, wow, yeah, yeah, them making the decision to get a G two, which is hard in the in and of itself, but being on that side of the before mm-hmm. and seeing the after, but realizing that that's what they need to do to heal.
1: Yeah. i I've had a kid. I had a kid with EOE. He was a Thursday afternoon kiddo. I don't know if did you see him with me last summer?
0: The little one? He had EOE, sweet little booger. With, um, his, with his hair. Yes. Yes, I remember him. <laughs> um
1: he uh (laughs) y'all can't see it we're like gesturing to each other um that little guy um he was exclusively breastfed um and then at nine months his weight started tanking and unfortunately it's not like our breasts are attached to a spigot to say you're producing this much volume at this time right um Trust me, every mother in America would love that. Um, (laughs) I would have. (laughs) But um, at nine months, he um, his weight started tanking and he had had eczema from the get go. But allergies ran in the family. So they just, you know, they didn't think of anything of it. But um, when he was 12 months, his doctor hospitalized him with a failure to thrive diagnosis. And um, when and, and, you know, the report that I got was it was mother failed at baby led weaning, mother failed at properly introducing PO trials. This is a behavioral feeding aversion. And a nurse practitioner that was a dear family friend advocated and they finally scoped him. And it was the worst case of EOE that any of them had seen. His esophagus was just... Decimated. And he was down, he went from being like ninety something percentile down to like third or fourth percentile before they finally got the feeding tube. And strict NPO for eight weeks. And then when I got him, in that eight week time period, he had gone from exclusively only breastfeeding and wanting nothing by mouth, uh, like no food by mouth to he didn't know how to take uh, a bottle. He didn't know how to take an open mouth cup. He didn't know how to take a transition hard nose sippy cup because he'd only gone from boob to NPO and we had an uphill battle. And that was just in eight weeks, eight weeks, drastic feeding tube dependency. Man, we, by grace, we powered through that one. But that that took a minute. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has so much more hair now. Oh, my gosh. So much more hair. <laughs> <laughs> it, like, funny thing. When you're fed, you grow you hair and <laughs> teeth <laughs> as well as
0: cankles. That's a thing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, with those in instances like that, with those children... Or a child that very early on received a G-tube, how, speaking of functional, how do you evaluate those skills? Like, I remember you talking about, you know, these children a lot of times aren't going to look like a typically developing child when they eat food. But if it's functional and it's safe, Mm -hmm. then that's what they need. Yeah.
1: Um, I try to, on my eval, try to figure out the, what I call their food age. So they may be, right. Some hypothetical case. They're 12 months chronologically and they were two months premature. So like adjusted age, 10 months, um, Let's say they had like a grade two brain bleed. So they're developmentally like 10 months. So most families understand the terms chronological, adjusted and developmental because they've had numerous appointments and specialists in the whole nine yards. So then I talk about, okay, but let's look at how well they've integrated their, um, their reflexes for eating, um, whether it be, um, their, has their phasic bite reflex integrated into a vertical chew pattern? Have they integrated their, um, tongue protrusion reflex and, are, or are they presenting with tongue thrusting because it's been such an extended period of time? Um, First and foremost, I had to go back and like learn all those terms because I didn't get them in school. Like you got lucky, lady. You're <laughs> I'm old. Do you see all this gray hair? You had a pediatric dysphagia class. I got like one night in grad school, like a million years ago. And mm-hmm. um I graduate and they say, you too can treat all of the tiny humans. And you're like, I know exactly what I'm doing. And then I got out and I was like, I don't have a freaking clue what I'm doing. So one, I had to hit the books and research hard um, to be able to identify and describe what they were what they were currently looking like. I mean, if that kid looks like and acts like developmentally a nine month old, then toss their chronological age out the window and start with um, what you would feed a typically developing nine month old. Meet them at the food age that they're presenting at, and then make it functional. I don't use chewy tubes because food's not plastic. I don't use Z vibes because food doesn't vibrate. And those are not my words. I had the pleasure of reading and meeting the ladies who wrote food chaining. And yes, they signed my copy. And yes, I have that copy because they're goddesses, but, um, you know, they flat out said food doesn't vibrate. Um, and I hear numerous tomatoes being thrown at me through the internet. Right in a second, Oh, she said that. Um, but If I want them to work on a chew, then I'm going to give them food to chew on because I desperately need these kids not to learn mastication and isolation. The central pattern generator for mastication does not talk to the central pattern generator for respiration. Mastication talks to the central pattern generation, CPG for swallowing, and the CPG for swallowing talks to respiration. So if I teach mastication and isolation only by chewing on something hard and inanimate, when I actually stick food in, they're more likely gonna have premature spillage and aspirate on that because they don't know how to integrate that bolus that breaks off and control it to swallow it safely so that you know the respiration component, the aero portion of the aerodysphasia or aerodigestive tract is safe. Um, so You know, I'm going to do safe PO trials. If I know that a child is not going to be able to masticate through hard celery or a hard carrot, then I'll give them that. Um, If um, I know that they can bite through things, I'll try one of those silicone net feeders. I don't like the actual cloth net feeders. Man, I used to recommend everybody get those cloth net feeders. And then I became a mom and shoved a banana in there one time. And I was like, how do you clean
0: this? So. (laughs) You, you've seen my culinary skills. <laughs> what? No, they're, they're not bad. <laughs> yeah, no. They're, ah, so
1: I just throw the net ones away and like give up. But the silicone net feeders, I can control the amount of the bolus that comes through by controlling the amount of food that I put in. And then when they bite down, they get the positive feedback of there's a food and that they have to swallow this bolus and the swallowing CPG talks to the respiration CPG. So those are all factors that go into my long-term planning. I need to know where are they currently functioning Find and determine their food age, and then say, "Okay, well, let's functionally move forward um, on something that's pleasurable." And again, I cannot stress enough: feeding therapy has to be positive to neutral at best. The second we go south, um, as as the folks in New York City would say that I just met last week, forget about it.
0: Did I do that all right? I Did can. I totally? You yeah, do it's it. Not like that. I can't. I'm not fully. I'm not New York City. Yeah, but you're Italian. It. <laughs> uh, for And for your long-term plan, you know, aside from making it functional, making it pleasurable, I know that a lot of times parents' first question is, okay, well, when are we going to get off of the G-tube? Mm-hmm. How do you develop that long-term plan with them? with their long-term goal, a lot of times being that.
1: Get rid of the tube. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. Um, um, first and foremost, my question is, um, are you prepared emotionally to have those crucial conversations? Um, and are you... Prepared emotionally to be a good listener because most of these parents are speaking from a position and a placement of fear. Um, I mean, you know, bear had his helmet bear was, you know, my bear was special look in there. And, um, all I wanted was for bear to look normal. Oh my God. I just wanted him out of that helmet. Um, I mean, it wasn't a feeding tube, but I mean, it was super, super obvious. Right. Okay. So a lot of these families just want their children to be able to break bread with them at the dinner table and for a holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, So one, be prepared for an emotionally charged topic. But also ethically, we're required to create and set realistic goals. So before I open my mouth, I need to understand where is GI and peds coming from? Do they have a goal for, um, are we just doing this for weight gain? Um, Is this temporary until the underlying cardiac condition can be repaired, especially for our kiddos that have Down syndrome? Mm -hmm. A lot of them have um, uh, PDAs. uh, holes in the hearts, and um, they might need a feeding tube just until they have the you know the holes repaired, um, but. You know, sometimes, yes, they do have it. I had one kiddo that was um, exclusively breastfed, had open heart surgery at six months, coded twice on the table. When they came to, he was um, self-imposed MPL. He, no matter what they did, oh, he was such a sweet boy. And I got him at four and a half and he could only take thin liquids. He had no idea how to manipulate a bolus because he had just refused because of the feeding tube dependency for so long. So his goal was, yes, let's rapid fire and get him off this tube. But even though he was four and a half, he ate like four or five month old, only knowing how to handle thin liquids. So we had to start all the way back with the food age of a four or five month old. Whereas, and and we made progress. I mean, don't get me wrong. We made really, really good progress, but... and cases like that are tough because he'd had a lot of clinicians before me. Mm-hmm. So then you walk in the door and you're like, oh, what am I going to do different? Um, which was incredibly nerve wracking because he'd had some really good clinicians before me. But, um I think for that particular child at that point in time, the family was ready to sit back and not force a quantity feed by mouth um, and to hang in there for the quality. Um, And that was the biggie was they had finally come to terms with the fact that this tube is in long-term until he develops the skill set in order to safely feed. Mm -hmm. Um, But I... I cannot be the only one who has reservations about um, using plastic and things that vibrate in functional therapy. And I'm not talking for the kid that has, I mean, we all know the child that has severe and profound um, autism spectrum disorders or intellectual disabilities and if they don't have something to chew on, they will bite everybody and everything. I'm not right. talking those kids. Um, I'm talking the kids where we're working on functional PO. Um, all right. So you, you've you been there, seen it, and had numerous supervisors. What's your, which I feel like after me, like I drilled that so much into you, I feel like I, I ruined you.
0: <laughs> and a, like, little, a little, not going to lie. But, well, I think that... And I mean, I'm not on the chewy tube train because I think <laughs> that I think that it's all about problem solving. It's all about... and like you said, I mean, if you're so worried about a child not being safe to chew, they're probably not ready for it. They're probably not at the level that mastication is something that you like really need to work on right now because other skills that they need prior to that haven't developed. I think it's sometimes I feel like we look at a child and look at their chronological age and think they need to be eating these certain foods and we start with things like that. But yep. you wouldn't look at a three-year-old who has been nonverbal up and has been nonverbal and expect them to start saying sentences, which is, I think, important. And, and it's hard to look at feeding that way, I think, sometimes. That's that's
1: a perfect analogy. And I'm totally going to borrow that. <laughs> yeah. All right. You told me today a case study that you had um, about, the, about the tongue. Yes. Okay. That was was beautifully stated, by the way.
0: Um, Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, we had a little one who had feeding difficulties. Mom was super frustrated because she couldn't get the bottle in because at open mouth position, the tongue was elevated. And it was brought to our attention that people wanting to do strengthening exercises and things to let the tongue sit more flat and cupped. But you look at this child has cardiac issues and you sit there and I didn't realize it at first, like I always help work through it. You sit there with your mouth closed and put your tongue up and just think about it for a second. It's so much easier to breathe. Mm -hmm. So Like we learn, respiration comes before feeding. Like that's the most important thing. The childhood cardiac issues, probably working a lot harder to get blood to their heart, which means they have to work harder to breathe. They don't care about eating at that point, Mm -mm. but it was, it's not, I wouldn't have, I didn't realize that at first, that's not something you're learning in necessarily in grad school, but it's so interesting how kids develop. They already develop these strategies for what's the most important to them and they're communicating that with us they that child doesn't care about eating because they're it's too hard for them to breathe that's them communicating that with us
1: yep it's respiration first it's always respiration then deglutition and when i have a kid that's posturing on bottle i mean yes i know the first thing that we should be thinking of is gerd because right the underlying cause but um when I see them arching and turning away and then going back to a lot of those kids, if you listen to them, they also have a strider. And, you know, there's your baseline, laryngomalacia, trachomalacia, you got to start worrying about that. And I mean, I go into rural areas and sometimes I wonder, are we actually catching all the cardiac kids before they get discharged from the hospital? <laughs> like, I mean, I had a kid that was discharged from the hospital, recurrent- hospital stays and finally at six months old they diagnosed the kid with like pretty significant Hirschsprung's disease I mean the back parts of this little guy's intestines were just not innervated to move stool through I mean he did not want to eat um and they were forcing quantity 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 in this kid's mouth when he was just you know relaying at a six month old level by turning away and crying and posturing during feeds and straining with bowels that he did not, he lacked the innervation to excrete his, you know, poop. Mm-hmm. we work with babies. We can say poop.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or as bear would say poopsies, but. poopsies.
1: Yes. As my bear would say poopsies. Y'all, I have a very opinionated three-year-old. Um, this is his father's fault. so, <laughs> Oh, oh my goodness! All right, which 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 feeding tube kid has stuck out with you? Which feeding tube kid is, and in, in their long term plan? Have you seen had one yet that's pulled at your heart?
0: I mean, I feel like your kids for like I always go back to because
1: you had them for I so mean, long.
0: I remember the one that always stuck out to me was our little friend that had what was it a grade. Uh-huh. great. Four, I, and that was my yes. first experience with, you know, like, fatal pediatric good. stroke, and that was like so interesting to me. And and she's, like, I was amazed by all the things that she was doing, but it was really cool to see, like, her progress.
1: Yeah, that's. I've had that little girl for two and, and a half years. Um, in October it'll be three. I've had her since she was discharged from the hospital. I mean, feeding therapy is not for the pain of heart. We are finally. Um, she had a uh it was a grade four um posterior right CVA that led bleed that led down into her brainstem, a grade three anterior left and a grade two posterior left temporal occipital lobe. Um, I mean, she's she's a miracle kid. And um She is now drinking thin liquids from an open mouth and or hard nosed soupy cup. Her mom's a fan of the hard nosed soupy cup because she likes her carpets to be cleaner, cleaner ish, (laughs) whatever. I did the same. I'm not going to judge. I educated her to the change in cranny facial structure with a cup. And she said, whatever, Michelle, I don't care. I don't want my carpets messy. And I was like, truth be told by the mother. (laughs) Um, Ah, uh, but she's and eating all everything. Everything. And she's a salt baby. Oh my gosh. Anything that's saltier in mommy, she can get her hands on. She's mm-hmm. she's down with it.
0: But she uh, was my like looking at functional. She was the one that I was like, this is what functional looks like and it's not gonna always be pretty, but mm-hmm. she's she's her neuroplasticity was pretty amazing yeah it,
1: um and and her her long term plan is as soon as we can increase the total volume of liquid safely by math then she'll get her tube out because she's meeting caloric um intake um like uh, with everything else it's just the uh the water um and I don't think she's had a formula feed through her G-tube and oh Johnny on the spot <laughs> two or three months, um, but that's but that's just it. I mean, that was a two and a half year, almost three year game plan, mm-hmm. um, and you know, we're close. We're close. And I can't ethically say your child will have the feeding tube out by December. But, um, I mean, I can hope before her birthday in a year that realistically, if she keeps going at the rate that she's going, I could realistically see that, you know, happening. I just cannot ethically say that. Um, but, um, yeah. Oh, we all get mushy over the babies. You know, the kids that that pull at your heartstrings and that you fall in love with. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we've got like three minutes before we have to switch to questions. So any any other, anything that you wish that you had known when you were um, um, first starting with PEDS dysphagia and feeding tubes?
0: Um, I feel like they see I feel like you just realizing they're not as scary and not scary but as intimidating. no it's scary we forget we forget that like and and I think doing a lot of research I think like it made me what was the thing I said to you about um I think it was like the second week we were talking about, I don't know, because this is before my pediatric dysphagia class. So you just gave me like a crash course and all things. And I had my little notebook, but you realize the more you learn about pediatric dysphagia, the more you realize you have to learn, like kind of like the more you learn about makeup, the more makeup you realize you have to buy. (laughs) So it's just like the more you learn and the more you realize that like there's so many other things going on that may not be in our scope, but like we have to understand. so so I think what you're telling me is
1: that as of last summer I no longer wear orange blush thank you for educating me away from the orange blush and the lady at the makeup store lad um and that I shared with you that I believe that I'm a functional idiot because
0: I know this much and realize I don't know this much but yes but you know a lot but nah, like you just know that you need to keep learning. I think that's the thing, realizing you always have to learn.
1: Yes, this is this is truth. This is truth. Uh, well, that's that's one of the reasons. And I know I talk a lot about clinical supervision, but it's important because you ask questions. And every single one of you lovely ladies that I have, like, sucked into the vortex of pediatric things. Um They'll ask questions. Oh my God, when I don't know, I'm like, and then I run home and I have to research it. But
0: that,
1: that makes us, that makes me a better clinician and a better therapist to my patients.
0: Um,
1: yeah. Awesome sauce. Okay. All right. Sorry to get all mushy gushy there at the end, but when you love what you do, that's a, a fun byproduct and also wise words, um, whether it pertains to pediatric dysphagia or makeup. Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed
0: those babies.